to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we are so thrilled to be back for season two of our show. Thank you for joining us after this long, short, what is time hiatus. Yes, you're right, Aubrey. What is 2020 anymore? Well, I guess this is coming out in 2021, but spoiler alert, we're recording in 2020 where the world is still a mess. Yeah, I'm wondering if it'll be much better when this uh, reaches everyone's ears. But hey, for those who are new to our podcast, first and foremost, thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you here. And if this is your first time listening in, maybe we should just very quickly reintroduce ourselves. Um, so, hi everyone. My name is Aubrey Paris, and I'm one of your two National Treasure Hunt co-hosts. I am a chemist by training, and obviously I'm a huge National Treasure fan. And my co-host and I, she'll introduce herself in a second, we met uh, as former college roommates when we spent four lovely years of our lives at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania. So that is the background to why we know each other and why, um, maybe why we have the back and forth, you know, that we do. We get sassy, right? Yeah. Now that you all know, like, our lives and how to stalk us, I'm Emily Black. I'm a neuroscientist no, I was going to say, hopefully by this point I'll have my PhD, but I definitely still won't. So <laughs> hopefully in a couple of months I'll have my PhD. <laughs> um, yeah, I also like National Treasure. I am the notoriously funny one. And I'm also the one who has a lot of trouble with chronology. Um, so just be prepared for that. Just moving forward. I swear I am a fan of these films, okay? Guys, it might not seem like it because I get things wrong a lot, but I promise you I'm I'm a fan. That's why we compliment each other so well. I feel like we are really the yin and the yang to this movie franchise. All right, so now that you know who we are, we do hope you'll go back and check out any episodes you might have missed in season one. There was some really great stuff in that season, if we do say so ourselves. But what you need to know right now is that we send new episodes of our show into the airwaves every other Wednesday. And in those episodes, we discuss every niche aspect of the National Treasure film franchise that you can possibly think of. And quite frankly, probably a lot of aspects that you can't think of. For example, back in season one, our topics ranged from history to secret societies to science and so much more. So. Um, we're pretty well-rounded. Last season, we spent our time discussing everything and anything about the first National Treasure film. So this season, we're going to be shining a spotlight on the sequel to our beloved film, which is, of course, National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. And Emily's laughing for some reason right now, and I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, guys, I'm really ready. I'm really ready to get into this commentary. And I'm just rereading my notes here in this Google Doc. Yeah, you guys are and in for a treat. <laughs> myself up. Good, good. But okay, well, before things get cr any crazier today and any crazier the rest of this season, 
We are going to kick things off today, as Emily just mentioned, the same way that we did in season one. And that means that today's episode is a recap of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets matched with our classic patented commentary that is really only possible when you have seen the movie 47 times. See what I did there? 47? Like the page? It took me a second, but yes, I do see it. See, guys, it's already playing out. But before <laughs> we get there, let me tell you where you can find us on your social media platforms. You can find us really on Instagram and Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast. And you can listen to any and all of our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, really wherever you like to put sounds of people talking into your ears you can find us we're national treasure hunt podcast gonna want to subscribe you know rate and review us if you can we love to hear your guys's feedback and we sincerely hope that we can continue to engage with you guys as we progress through this season so aubrey i don't know about you but i am ready to go Yes, I honestly couldn't have said it better, Emily. So let's start this really exciting recap and commentary of National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. Okay, so everyone, we are starting with our classic National Treasure flashback. It is Washington, D.C. in April of 1865, apparently exactly five days after the end of the Civil War. We are greeted with incredible fireworks. Don't even know if they had fireworks back then. Tune into a future episode of our show to find out. But we are finding ourselves in a saloon where we meet Thomas Gates, a man who is evidently really good at puzzles and riddles. Makes a lot of sense, you know, if you know about the Gates family, that that would be his shtick. So he is approached by two men, one of which we learn, spoiler alert, is John Wilkes Booth, the Notorious. And these two men give Thomas Gates a Playfair cipher as they're seated in this saloon. They ask him to decode the cipher. So guys, there are hats. There are so many hats. All the different kinds of hats that you can possibly have, there are there. So these two men are asking Thomas Gates to decode this Playfair cipher using the riddle, the debt that all men pay. And so we watch as Thomas Gates is solving this cipher. Simultaneously in another screen, John Wilkes Booth is making his way to the theater where- My place, guys, the theater, my place. Man, do I miss playing in pit orchestras. Let's do that again sometime soon. Yes, well, hopefully not in this exact context, because we all know what's about to happen, right? John Wilkes Booth is going to go and assassinate President Lincoln. But I will note, on uh, on that note that you made about hats, Emily, I'm not sure if you noticed, but Mr. Booth did remove his hat prior to becoming a murderous, treasonous individual. How polite of him. Such a gentleman. Gotta do what we gotta do. All right, so... So, guys, after he shoots, he, like, decides, you know what? I'm in a theater. I'm going to make a whole scene out of this, right? I'm going to get into character. He jumps off the balcony. He rips the American flag, which I thought was a very nice touch because essentially that's what he's doing. He is ripping the heart of our nation by assassinating the president. It is poetic in a really sad way. Yes, 
And then, you know, when he lands on the stage, guys, he decides, this is my Shakespeare moment. Let me yell, except he yells in Latin, which I don't think Shakespeare spoke. But he yells, Sic Semper Tyrannus. And then proceeds to kind of, like, limp off the stage. (laughs) I mean, that was quite the jump. (laughs) So, like, did he hurt his foot? Or is that the fake leg, guys? My question is, is he the one-legged man? He's From not the, the one-legged of man. The film, I think he could be. I okay. think it could be a fake leg, and he jumped off that balcony with a fake leg, and now he's limping around. Please ignore Emily's assessment over the last 20 seconds, because there's absolutely no way that that is true. But here we are. Simultaneously, after President Lincoln has been shot, we are taken back to the saloon where Thomas Gates is decoding the cipher and just as he discovers that it is the cipher is indicating that there is basically a treasure of gold to be found he's literally reading the words I believe temples of gold if my memory serves me correctly that is when someone bursts into the saloon and says that President Lincoln has been shot this also happens to be the exact convenient moment that Thomas Gates sees the Knights of the Golden Circle pin on the man he is helping out and for those of you who aren't aware the Knights of the Golden Circle or the KGC in this film is really the mark of a traitor, especially now that the Civil War has ended. So, in this moment, Thomas Gates realizes that he's trying to find this golden treasure to help the South basically reignite the Civil War. So, Thomas Gates, our hero, rips out the pages of the cipher from this book, which is the legendary Booth Diary, and tosses them into the fire. As a result, what happens? The page gets kind of burnt. And Thomas Gates is shot. Well, that's not like as a result. Oh, I guess it is as a result <laughs> of him into the fire. Yeah, he gets shot. Dude, then this this guy with the gun wants to shoot the kid, which like, not cool, man, not cool. <laughs> Can I mention this kid is a really good actor? He yeah. cries so well. And the kid goes at one point, it's not fair, as his dad is dying. And you know what, kid? I agree. It's not fair. And then, you know what? It's a really good thing that this KGC dude is not a vampire because he sticks his hand straight up in that fire and grabs (laughs) that piece of paper like it is nothing. You don't see him, like, wince or anything. He just takes it out of there. And conveniently, when he takes it out, it's no longer on fire. So. Yeah, but it is it is a little parched. A little well, it's definitely worse for the wear. It's it's better. <laughs> and it, that page is actually going to become really important in just a few minutes. And as Thomas Gates is uttering his dying words, his his dying breaths to his son Charles, this child that Emily has so much respect for, what are the words he leaves him with, Emily? <laughs> the death that all men. Wow, that was award-winning. Thank you. What a performance. But yes, in his dying words, he must say the a riddle as opposed to what the riddle means, which is really very national treasure. It's convenient for our story, I have to say. Right, it would be much less exciting if they just 
said what the riddle meant. So we flash forward now to the present day where our favorite protagonist, Benjamin Franklin Gates, is finishing up a lecture on who other than the Knights of the Golden Circle, Southern extremist group operating in the North during the Civil War. And Benjamin Franklin Gates notes that if Thomas Gates hadn't burned these pages of the Booth Diary, the South might have found this temple of gold and actually won the Civil War, changing the course of American history. Now, I do want to make a quick note, Emily. This is a little bit of a spoiler alert or preview, but, you know, we are known for our commentary here. We know from the story that this is a massive gold treasure in America, right? Mm-hmm. That's temples of gold. And he doesn't think Cibola? He doesn't think the city of gold? I he had a lapse in memory for the convenience of the storyline, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, we have seen this very smart protagonist of ours make some very questionable decisions. So, you know, it goes along with it. But I just had to point that out there. We also do learn that in this context of this lecture, Ben is joined by his father, Patrick Gates, who um, is now, now that they found the Templar treasure, he's like all in on this treasure game once again. Right. Buddy, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if I'm going to be famous, it's just You're going to be famous too. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. And then the worst possible thing happens. What's that, Emily? <sighs> Freaking Mitch. Mitch, man. Choice words for Mitch. Mitch is quite arguably one of my least favorite villains in cinematic history. Yeah, like at least Sean Bean had the air of being Sean Bean. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this Ed Harris, I think is his name. Yes. Is is also a well-known actor, though I don't know any of his previous work, so I'm not biased like I was with Sean Bean but like I always had a little love for Ian yes because Sean Bean but this dude just oh he just stands up rudely in the middle of this end of lecture thing and says what Aubrey he asks Ben what do you think happened to the page that the guy pulled out of the fire Ben, of course, says, you know, we may never know. It has been hundreds of years and no one has come forward with it. So we don't even have any reason to believe it still exists. And Mitch Wilkinson, who, yes, another spoiler alert, is our villain in this film, goes on his little diatribe, his own little story time. All spotlights are on him, which is really we learn all he cares about, right? Mm -hmm. He says that his relative, Silas Wilkinson, tells a different story. His, his long-lost relative, Silas, says that Thomas Gates was actually the one that called the meeting at the saloon, and that meeting was to plan the assassination of Lincoln. Guys, this is the point of the movie where I realized that I had never understood the whole beginning segment of the film, because <laughs> I did not remember this part at all this i was like oh my gosh this is i don't know how many times i've seen this film but i was shocked and in awe and horror as this was revealed and then you know what he holds up this page and let me tell you it's very nice that he has taken the time to get it laminated for them 
It's true. I mean, they have apparently had this burnt booth diary page in their family for like 240 years. So they had the time. And on this page, we see Thomas Gates' name along with a notation of artifacts. And next to his name are the names of other individuals who were actually convicted in Lincoln's assassination. So um, you might ask yourself logically, what is an artifix? I am no student of Latin, and apparently an artifix means the designer or the mastermind. So, of course, the implication here is that Thomas Gates was the mastermind of the assassination. Can I just say that uh, for most of the time that you were just talking there, I thought you were pronouncing artifacts incorrectly? Did you watch this movie? <laughs> I swear I did. I have like nine pages of notes to prove it. <laughs> cool, cool. Okay, clearly without subtitles, though. <laughs> Funny that you mentioned it. In my notes at this point, I have Patrick is mumbling. I need to turn the subtitles on. I mean, god darn it, Patrick. <laughs> Get it together. But I will say, um, um, this time I watched the movie, I looked at it with a totally new perspective. So what happened here was these archaeologists, historians, conservators were presented with a purported piece of cultural heritage, this artifact. And um, of course, the page does in fact match up with the torn pages of the Booth Diary. And um, our protagonist and his family are left spiraling out of control. What is going on? Our family is now implicated in Lincoln's assassination. And so they're assured that the page will be tested thoroughly for authentication. But um, we need to reunite the gang here because don't you know that in order to prove Thomas Gates is innocence, what do we have to do? Well, we have to find the treasure that Thomas Gates said was indicated in the cipher, which was the reason he got shot and killed. Right? Yeah, real simple. So that means we have to get the gang back together, and we do this by re-encountering our good buddy Riley Poole. Riley! Emily's favorite, our classic sidekick character. We actually find out that Riley has been spending his non-Templar treasure days writing a book about the Templar treasure and other conspiracy theories. And we meet him at a classic Borders bookstore, LOL. Borders R.I.P. Seriously. So he's doing a book signing. The classic Riley joke is that everyone doesn't know who he is and thinks he's Ben Gates. And if he's not Ben Gates, then who the heck is he? Um, And everyone seems to kind of have the hots for Ben, like all of these really attractive young women and like, uh, you know, all props to Nick Cage. Like he is he's an attractive man. But like, have they seen him in comparison to Riley? Um, I don't know how to answer that. Different types, different types. Okay. In in any case, just to underscore or add insult to injury here, um, as Riley is epically failing at this book signing, his beautiful red Ferrari is being towed on the street um, outside of the shop um, because the IRS impounded his car because his accountant did something illegal. So... This brings Riley back into Ben's life. We learn a little bit about where Ben's been in his own life. We learn that Abigail kicked him out of their house, that he's living with his father, and of course that his family killed President Lincoln. Amazing! I have a bone to pick. They did not need to break them up. Okay, they could have done this movie without them breaking up. 
I don't think that was necessary. I thought it was stupid. They spent the entire movie basically acting like they were a couple anyway. Yeah. They could have just had them be like a little argumentative with each other. Did not need to break it, break them up. Let me have my love story, okay? I don't well, ask it- for much. And especially because we get another love story in this movie. So it's not like we didn't have one at all. We have Ben's dad yeah. and his mom. Um, we're just all about the spoiler alerts today, but that's going to happen and, and we'll the get love there. Stories. Yes, Emily. And guys, if you take a moment, I implore you to go back and watch this scene where Ben is sitting on the stoop outside of the apartment, which I presume is Riley's apartment, maybe? Yes. Go back and look on the gate of the apartment next door. There is a sign that says Seegers for sale. I don't know if you remember this or not, but last year we had someone by the name of Mr. Charles Seegers on our podcast. My goodness, how could I forget? So Mr. Seegers, among many other things, was the story writer and the executive producer, one of the executive producers of the National Treasure films. I think this was purposely placed there. Um, I think that we are certainly going to be asking Charles about this to see if he knew about the placement. Yeah, this is almost definitely a classic Easter egg, which I'm so glad you caught. And you should totally try to screenshot that and we will share it on our Twitter because I've never noticed that before. That was a really good catch. Mm -hmm. Um, So Riley is helping him break into his house. Why, you may ask? Because it turns out that Abigail has a new job. So she's no longer working at the National Archives because we already did the National Archives last movie. And so that's not helpful to us anymore. So now she's working at the Library of Congress and like we need that connection for this movie. So it really just works out real nicely. Regardless, she works at the Library of Congress and through that job has access to the Booth Diary page. So purportedly, I guess, this event that Ben was doing at the very beginning of the film was related to the Library of Congress. In any case, he needs to break into his house to get her badge because I guess he was going to steal the Booth Diary page, IDK. And I guess he thought that she wasn't going to notice that her badge was gone, like when she went for it the next morning. (laughs) Questionable decisions. Maybe he thought she would be too distracted by her new boyfriend, Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. Yes, yes, this is true. Phil Dunphy from Modern Family, who is apparently a White House curator, which I did not know was a thing, but sounds pretty cool. (laughs) Right. So, um... So naturally, they're caught red-handed in the house by Abigail and Phil Dunphy, who, again, that's what we're going to call him here, because for all intents and purposes, the same character. In any case, um, basically, Ben convinces Abigail to show them the Booth Diary page under infrared analysis. I don't know what kind of analysis this is. This is not the infrared spectroscopy I'm used to. Did it look like infrared light to you? Not at all. Okay, cool. Because I know you're more familiar with that than I am in your <laughs> in your uh, studies getting your PhD, but I did, did not think that looked like infrared light. No, no. Regardless, it was basically spectral imaging. I- I'm pretty sure they also mentioned, which sounds uh, more correct. We also mm-hmm. learn in this scene that Abigail's role now at the Library of Congress is the director of document conservation. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she has access to the page and the tools to look at it, basically. Um, and 
after much scrutiny under the spectral imaging, Abigail, Riley, and Ben discover that there is residual ink on the reverse of this page that shows part of the Playfair cipher that Thomas Gates spoke of um, in this original family story. And so they need to crack this partial cipher. So um, before we get to that, we do have a brief moment where we're back at one of our classic scenes, the FBI building with uh, everyone's least favorite FBI agent, Agent Sadesky. Um, I do want to note, though, and the reason I'm even bringing this up right now is there's a huge change in Sadesky's um, tone, perspective, whatever you want to call it, in National Treasure 2 versus National Treasure 1. So basically what happens here is Sadesky and his male sidekick and his female sidekick, who it turns out is an actress um, that is a main character in the National Treasure-esque show Blood and Treasure, fun fact. Um, these sidekicks inform Sadesky that Wilkinson came forward with this page and it implicates Ben's family pretty badly in history. The sidekicks th seem to think this is hilarious, but Sadesky is super skeptical. And he's skeptical of not Ben for once, but Mitch Wilkinson. He basically says this guy claims he had this page for like 140 years and he just suddenly comes forward with the page. Why? Yeah, and I'm like, Sadesky, this is the most logical question you've ever asked in your career. Um, so they begin looking into Wilkinson and that really gets us started learning about our really one of the only new characters we get in, in this installment of the film. So anyway, let's flash back Emily now to, um, Ben's dad's house where he and Riley are trying to decode these cipher fragments and they're just going to go through every five letter word they can think of. Yeah, that seems like a great option. And, you know, in the meantime, Patrick is sitting, watching TV, being pretty depressed. And it looks like he's wearing a robe over a dress shirt. I mean, it's very Washington, D.C. Which is the really interesting choice. But he does come forward with some really helpful information in solving this five-letter clue bit. Mm -hmm. The answer here, as in life, is death. Because we need to remember, what did Thomas Gates tell Charles with his dying words? The debt that all men pay, which of course is death. Well done. That was well-timed. We didn't even plan that. Okay. Death does end up being the word to crack the cipher and so naturally what do we got to do we're going to call abigail who happens to be on a little soiree date type thing with who the enemy she's meeting with the enemy mitch with mitch like why okay i'd like to point out in this next scene that the number that you see on abigail's phone in the contact picture is that of patrick gates which at first i was like oh that's cute because she has patrick's phone number like they must have gotten really close as a family during this time that they were together so sweet but apparently she knows it's ben partly because of the way that she answers which is a very risky strategy but she starts with hey what which 
If that's Patrick calling, I don't know that that's how you want to answer the phone. So she, Ben must have done this before in order to get her to answer the phone. So she must know that it's him that's calling. Yeah, I mean, it would be weird if they were broken up and the dad is constantly calling her. That'd be a little strange. <laughs> I would have um, asked him, though, honestly. <laughs> Throughout no. the movie, he really seems to want them to get back together. That's, that's actually a really good point. Um, okay, but regardless, that's actually a good catch. I do I do like that. Um, but, but Ben is calling Abigail with his dad's phone, and he wants to tell her that they decoded the partial cipher, and it's Laboule. Um, and there's a partial end word that we only have a little bit of. Laboule, L-A-D, and Abigail... In, is trying to whisper and talk on the phone. You see Mitch trying to hear her and is doing a pretty good job. Um, she basically decides it's La Boulet Lady. That is the cracked cipher. Wilkinson hears her and realizes that she means the Statue of Liberty, which was planned, the, the, the statue was planned by Edward La Boulet. Um, the funny thing here, okay, this is my turn to have a little moment. When Wilkinson welcomes her back to the table after she gets off the phone, he asks, that was Ben? He cracked the cipher? And I just want to say, who said anything about a cipher, Mitch? This is like the classic the classic moment in any, um, you know, like a murder mystery when someone, or no, here, we'll use a Harry Potter analogy. When um, in the... Uh, Goblet of Fire movie, um, at, at the end, Mad-Eye Moody says, and who else was in the graveyard? And Harry's like, I don't think I said anything about a graveyard. Classic, classic moment. But here it's not that significant. I was just like, mm, plot hole. Anyway, we learn in this scene um, a little bit more about Mitch Wilkinson as he's discussing with Abigail the cipher cracked which is lovely lady we learn that mitch himself is descended from the confederate general albert pike and that as a result he's fascinated by civil war era history at this point we get a very important quote from mitch which actually becomes his motive and i think it's dumb so his quote is quote, man only has one lifetime, but history can remember you forever. And I think it's a beautiful sentiment, but the fact that that becomes his entire motive for being the villain drives me a little crazy. So we're flashing back to our protagonists, um, Ben, Patrick, and Riley, who realize also that they're talking about the Statue of Liberty. And this is where we get a little piece of trivia. Um, we have to figure out which Statue of Liberty, Emily, which one is Laboulet talking about here? Which I have to say, I did remember this. Okay, I, I did remember that there were three. Actually, I remember that there were two. I forgot that there were three. But this surprises me every time still. Like, I'm still a little taken aback by like, oh, really? This is this is a legitimate thing? So there are three Statues of Liberty, for those of you who don't know. There's one in New York. There is one in the Luxembourg Garden. And then there is one in Paris, which, Aubrey, we take a field trip to. 
We do, because that is the version of the Statue of Liberty that La Boulet called his lady. So yes, we do take a field trip to Paris, uh, and we see the statue near the Eiffel Tower. Of course, Riley is his techie self and uses a helicopter toy drone thing to get a camera up by Lady Liberty's torch. And um, it's at this time that we have a lovely interaction with some French police who seem to take a great liking to Ben, who impresses them with his knowledge of the French uh, Montesquieu. Oh my gosh, the police officer, first of all, they're like a little snippy in the beginning with them, which I feel like they're really trying to like, they were leaning into like that stereotype. Yeah, that like hashtag people stereotype. Don't like <laughs> but then, yeah, as you said, they got, they got real chummy with him real quick. But the dude, policeman, you know, says to Ben, you know Montesquieu? As if like the policeman knew him personally, as if they were out the other night, just like, casually grabbing some beers or something like that like is that something that all french people just feel like they're like bfs with montesquieu um, but while this conversation is happening riley of course is successful with his mission he finds um a bit of text on the torch portion of the statue takes a picture and our police buds help to translate and the translation of the text that of course is in french it says Across the sea, these twins stand resolute to preserve what we are looking for. La Boulet, 1876. Now, I do have to say, what happens next, of course, is Ben decoding that clue. And I really feel like Ben's clue-cracking abilities are on warp speed. Oh, yeah. It takes him zero time, which, I mean, is good because there are a lot of clues. Like, there, I know one of the things we talked about in the last movie was, like, there were only a few like real big clues that happened i feel like in this movie there are a lot more clues so it's almost like his reaction time has to be a little Mm -hmm. faster he has to come up with the solutions a little more quickly in order for the movie not to be 18 hours long too right unlike Um, this episode of our podcast that's that's very true but regardless and and what would make this episode even longer for us if we did it was it would be to identify all of the parallels and the the distinct contrasting points between this movie and the first one and we will tell you to check back um pretty soon we're going to have an episode entirely dedicated to these parallels and the contrasting points because there's a lot of really cool stuff to get to which we think you're really going to enjoy but to get back to where we are here today ben decodes this clue um, as referring to the hms resolute which is a british ship that was lost in the arctic in the 1800s now according to ben this ship was salvaged by american whalers and then congress sent it back to great britain now again according to ben when that ship was retired queen victoria made two desks from its timbers and one of them is in Buckingham Palace. So obviously that's where we're going next, Em. I mean, it's basically a hop, skip, and a jump away from Paris. Yes, and because we need to get from one country to another, we have a nice convenient scene here back at the FBI headquarters in Washington where we learn even more about Mitch Wilkinson. And so there's a lot of detail on his background here, but the key points are this. He studied history at a military college and then ran a bunch of mercenary-type operations. So he's effectively um, the leader of this gang of mercenaries, and he's a trained black market antiquities dealer. Um, So might he be more of a bad guy than Ian? I mean... Different kind. Yeah. 
we didn't really get to know that much about Ian's back. Like we knew a little bit about Ian's backstory, but we didn't really get to know much about him. And from what it seemed like him and Ben were like, kind of like chummy. And I don't know that Ben would have ever been chummy with Mitch. That's an excellent, excellent point. Um, But, and then Sadusky makes another excellent point. I can't believe I'm saying this and asks his little sidekicks. Why wouldn't Mitch have sold the page to a private collector for a bunch of money? If he's a black market antiquities dealer, Mm. why is he coming forward? And that's, what's weird here. And that is what kind of makes all of us even more suspicious of Mitch's motives. All of us minus Emily, apparently, but now it's all making sense. Yeah. I am. See these, um, you all, think that we're do we do these recap episodes to get all of you on the same page it's really to get me and emily on the same page (laughs) for the rest of the season (laughs) Um, i you know i'm the detail oriented one and she's the funny one it's a match made in heaven Mm mm-hmm Yes. So we also get an extra scene because we're still flying to England at this point. Like it's a long flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this scene, we see Patrick being um, knocked out in his home by one of Mitch's lackeys um, because Mitch wants to have Patrick's phone cloned so that he can basically steal all of Ben's communications with his father. This is a movie where the bad guy literally makes no contributions. Mm-hmm. Like, he is just literally stealing all of Ben's work, which Ben points out <laughs> later, I will say. But regardless, um, I guess he doesn't, like, get injured. It looked pretty bad, but whatever. He's fine. When we next see him, he's calling Ben to be like, hey, Ben, I was knocked out, but don't worry. Enjoy your time in London. Yeah, super casual. And Ben's, like, all concerned. And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. Don't worry it's about fine. it. I, they didn't take anything, so what are you going to do? Call the police? I don't know. Um, so um, this is also a moment when um, I just want to point out, Emily, because this is where I noted it in my set of notes. Have you noticed the ubiquitous product placement for Apple and iPod and Macs, like, everywhere in this movie? I have. Yeah, it was it was quite heavy-handed this time around. I mean, like, chef's kiss at the all of the camera angles to make sure it adequately showcased that Apple logo. You want to on... solve national treasure for yourself? You need an Apple laptop, apparently. Yeah, you can't You can't go with a Dell. Can't go with any, any old HP. It's got to be a Mac. And it's got to have, like, a big bulky iPod for Riley as he's setting up his little control room in the restroom of Buckingham Palace because we are now going to see the curator at Buckingham Palace so that we can just ask them to casually show us the Queen's study where the Resolute Desk is. And now we have probably the most Nicolas Cage scene of this entire film and quite possibly this entire franchise. Guys, my notes at this point devolved into a series of quotes. <laughs> which, which is okay. So how we're gonna we're gonna break down this scene? I'm gonna go through the facts. Emily's gonna make a little signal to me whenever she wants to scream a quote at me, and uh, we'll keep going. So basically, what we have here, Ben is going up the staircase, and he is um, dabbing alcohol on his neck and his wrists and, and his mouth to make it seem like he's a little tipsy. Um, we'll see why that's important in a moment. At the same time, Abigail arrives. What? Abigail, what are you doing here? Um, apparently, Ben's dad told her that Ben and Riley were in London and she came to offer her assistance. How nice. 
Mm-hmm. Really, nice. really very kind. So um, basically, Ben decides that he needs to create a scene as a bit of a diversion because the way to get to the Queen's study is through the security room. So he basically needs to be detained by security. So what does he do? He gets in a massive fight with Abigail about their breakup on the steps in Buckingham Palace. Emily, go ahead. So one of the best lines he has here is he's talking about how he was wrong about this and wrong about that. And he goes, wrong about us? Like, in this very dramatic way. (laughs) Yes. Um, it was it was really, really beautiful as he begins to invoke the attention of all of the tourists around him. Yes, Emily. and as he does this, he <laughs> taps on one guy's shoulder and goes, this is more interesting than that. Yes, please turn away from your guided tour of Buckingham Palace. Listen to our lovely conversation. Um, at this point, he's drawn the attention of the security guards who are close to him, and he's beginning to act like he's drunk and they can smell the alcohol on him at which point he says something along the lines of is it terrible for a man to have a little whiskey and like <laughs> says it like that he says it in what can only be described as how nicolas cage pronounces the word whiskey um he then mounts the banister haggis of- you're too early he he mounts the banister of the staircase and starts shouting the names of traditional english foods at the security guards haggis yes that is the moment that is just impeccable and um and naturally they um are detained and taken into a, a little jail um the jail really reminds me of the tiny jail that is theorized to exist at Lincoln Financial Field where the Eagles play. Eagles jail is like a very real thing. Did you know about you live in Philadelphia? I'm assuming you know about this. No, I was going to compare it to a jail cell that was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the werewolves went when they turned into werewolves. No, no, no. This is more interesting than that. Um, <laughs> No, in Eagle, uh, the Eagles fans in NFL are known to be so aggressive that there's like a small jail in um, their stadium. And so that's kind of what this reminded me of. They're like locked up in this little jail, at which point Ben and Abigail have a hilarious conversation that goes something like, you were excellent back there, like great acting. And then when I realized I was really arguing during our fake argument. Um, which is really funny. At which point Riley says, you guys are so great together, which Riley, I agree. I agree with you there. Yes. Right as always, buddy. And so since Riley is our tech genius, he can easily like manipulate in the back end, the locked door, let them out of their jail cell so that they can take this little service elevator to get up to the queen's study. And we have another beautiful romantic moment, Emily, that maybe you'd like to describe in the service elevator. Yes, well, right before that romantic moment, I actually want to draw your attention to something that we had talked about a little bit last season, and I don't know if we're going to get back into it at all this season, but some moments of kind of some patriarchy kind of cropping its head a little bit, and one of the things, I think Abigail gets annoyed by this too, but I get annoyed by it every time, where Riley opens the gate and they're getting ready to walk out, and Ben's like, no, you're staying here, it's too dangerous. And, like, can I just say hashtag patriarchy and let's not do that. But, yes, as Aubrey was saying, they have a lovely moment in the ele- in the service elevator right before um, he's trying to, he's still trying to shoot her away. 
At which point he goes, get in, get in, get in! And she has to get in with I him. believe it, it. Okay, this is the part where I can do the mimic. It's, And you have to sort of see my face. So Emily really only gets the benefit of this. But it's, get in, get in, get in! And he does the whole <laughs> face head jolt, very Nick Cage. Which anyway. reminds me of the, the pivot scene from Friends. For anybody who's a Friends fan out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Now... What I have to say here is once they're in the elevator, he, you know, has his head buried in the flowers. He's smelling them. He's saying some nice things. He's telling her she's nice. And uh, she's being like, Ben, that's the flowers. And he's like, nope, nope, it's you. And I have to say, he is not terrible at being flirty. I approve. The sexual tension in this scene is great. I'll, um, yeah, we can go with that. It was a very cute scene. It's a scene actually that gets cut out of the film a little bit when you see the movie played on TV, like on TV stations. Um, is which the is film even worth it at that point? Stop it. Yes, Emily, we host National Treasure Hunt. It is. But um, thanks for that. Um, so, so yes, they take the service elevator up to the floor where the Queen's study is. Um, they... Apparently the queen's study, like the door to enter, is like all curved and weird. Just it's a like weird. It's like part note. of a wall. I'm not a fan of doors that look like walls. And it's like a round wall, literally. Yeah. Very strange. Anyway, um, they enter the study. They climb underneath the resolute desk, and they see the logo of one Malcolm Gilvery and the year 1880. Now Riley does a quick Google search and learns that Gilvery was not a carpenter or anything he actually made chinese puzzle boxes so what does that mean basically the entire desk is a clue and the drawers of the desk have little numbers they're like tumblers on a safe and so there are four drawers they need a four number combination eventually they figure out after only two tries because you know one was too easy more than two is just too much um that the code they need is the year 1876 which of course was the inscription on the statue of liberty in paris so the secret drawer pops out and in this secret drawer uh, is a wooden plank with symbols on it and um it looks super old right yeah at this point ben exclaims mm, new rules new rules which confuses me a little bit every time so uh and then I, I realized, after he said his next line, <laughs> <laughs> what he meant by his new rules comment, um, is that this, this wooden plank is basically centuries older than the Civil War. And as Ben says, I doubt it has anything to do with the plot to assassinate Lincoln. So suddenly... Now we're even deeper in history. Yeah, it's really cool. We've actually eclipsed the timeline of even the first movie now. As he notes that these the markings on this wooden plank look like they're Incan or Aztec. And um, interestingly enough, I've paid a lot of attention to this movie, unlike sometimes I think Emily. And I believe, <laughs> call out, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Emily, based on your understanding. But throughout the entire movie, we never actually find out the origin of the planks themselves like where exactly they came from or fit into the story we just know that they're part of this clue which i think is pretty interesting mm. um and maybe we could see it incorporated in some way into a third national treasure movie like explaining and tying the two together mm. but that's just a thought in any case um at this time 
Um, the security guy finally realizes that they're missing from their jail. He's really ineffective at his job. He's like Sadusky 2.0. And Riley must set off the fire alarm to allow all of them to escape from Buckingham Palace with the plank. And um, at this point, this is when Ben turns around at a really opportune time to notice that Mitch Wilkinson and his cronies are outside of Buckingham Palace to start chasing them. Mm -hmm. Just because, again, we know that Wilkinson can't do anything himself, so he must just follow Ben because Ben will eventually lead him to the treasure. That's kind of how this works. Mm -hmm. right? And guys, I just want to say that I know it seems like I probably checked out at earlier points in the movie. I promise you I didn't. But I honestly did really check out at this part because I am not huge on chase scenes or action sequences. I'm really not into car chase scenes. But I know Aubrey really enjoyed it. So maybe Aubrey you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so what ensues is this this massive chase scene, which we'll actually go into more detail on in a few episodes when we talk about the production of the movie. Um, naturally, um, Mitch's dudes steal some cars, and um, we see some more beautiful product placement. I don't know if you noticed this, but Mercedes and Range Rover are displayed prominently in this chase scene. Um, in any case, they... Are really I don't really know how much there is to say, Emily. They're literally driving throughout London. I'm pretty sure they crossed the Thames River like four times <laughs> via different bridges. Um, and everyone who is not part of this chase scene is just a, a sad, sad accident. They all have to run away from these cars. Yeah, it's just... like we're watching a superhero movie where like all of the <laughs> poor innocent bystanders are just like dying or getting injured. Like I would hate to know what happened to all these people. But the important thing that happens is that they realize that they need to lose Mitch, right? Yeah. So they need to get rid of this, this wooden plank here. So Ben has the idea of, you know what, let's take a picture of it on a cell phone because cell phones can do that. And unfortunately, conveniently, some might say for the plot, Abigail's cell phone camera is broken. So this is the point at which they decide that they're going to run a red light in order to get that picture taken, which I say bold to assume that that red light specifically would be hooked up with a camera system because not all of them are. And that it would have good enough resolution to capture, you know, these intricate symbols on this plank that are now going to be interpreted through your windshield as mm -hmm. well. I mean, they had a lot of faith. It does work out. They basically run the red light. The The camera takes the picture. And then as they're crossing the Thames River for the 84th time, they toss the plank um, out of the car and into the water, which causes Mitch and company to, um, to stop chasing them, right? Because... Because then they need to go get it. So typical national treasure, you got to have somebody jump into a body of water that they probably shouldn't be jumping into. Right, because of their own health, um, like the, the quality of the water itself or the fact that it's like multiple stories high and they could probably die. Mm -hmm. Yes. But of course, also in national treasure fashion, the person jumping in the water totally survives and gets what they're looking for. So, um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, 
we're now suddenly back in the States. We crossed the pond because movie magic. And uh, we are back at Patrick's house in Washington, D.C. Um, interestingly, this is the same house that we saw in the first movie for Patrick. But I'm pointing this out because when we saw Abigail and Ben's house in this movie, it was different than their house at the end of the first film. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, probably aren't going to notice that unless you are doing the research that we're doing here. But fun fact. Or um, Aubrey, because I didn't know this. Right. That's what I was going to say, but I didn't want to be that mean. So. I'll be um, mean to myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, th- at this point, Patrick gets his first look at the symbols on this plank, and he basically says, yeah, these are pre-colonial Native American markings. Um, he's able to identify one symbol that looks a little bit like a pyramid, and he says that this is a symbol for Cibola, um, which is one of the ways we refer to the legendary city of gold. And again, I would just like to say, why is this surprising when they knew from the beginning that the KGC was looking for a giant American gold treasure? Anyway, so this is when we get our our next little history lesson. And this is the history lesson related to Cibola. And I have a lot of thoughts about this, Emily. So let me tell the, let me, um, give the history lesson that Ben gives us, of course. And then I will ask my big question. Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. So according to Ben, he's reading this out of a book. Um, In 1527, there was a Spanish ship that wrecked off the coast of Florida. Okay. There were four survivors of this wreck. And one of the survivors was a slave named Esteban. Esteban was said to have saved a local Native American chief. And as a reward, Esteban was taken to that Native American tribe's sacred city of gold. Now, he tried to find it again later on, you know, to, to rediscover it because, you know, massive treasure, but he could never find the city again. And that was sort of the lore of the city. And, and part of the story, of course, is when, when General Custer's search for gold ended with his last stand at Little Bighorn, which geographically is around Montana, it became clear that no one would ever find this city of gold. So, Emily, this is my issue. And this is like a big issue that we are going to ask Charles about. Okay. We're going to ask Mr. Seegers the next time we talk to him. If if Esteban was shipwrecked off the coast of Florida and the tribe's chief that he saved is presumably somewhere in that region. Let's just say the American Southeast. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. When we find Cibola, it ends up being in South Dakota, which is half of the country away (laughs) okay how did this tribe in florida their city of gold was in south dakota because you could even say oh well maybe they just like had a lot of land there are so many native american tribes that span across the united states that how would that like logic there's no no logic there and i can't hmm yeah, I can see that this is really bothering you, Aubrey. Is this uh, reminiscent of your uh, issue with National Treasure One? Um, which which part? The uh, what the the cost of the replica of the Declaration of Independence? That yeah, yeah. I would say this is on a pretty similar level, but this might even be more important because it's like central to the plot, mm. whereas the other one was just like that's annoying. Mm. And that one ended up having a logical answer that we teased out. Yeah, so hopefully we can do the same thing here. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I'm not optimistic, but that is what Charles Seegers is for. Um, anyway, we learn in this moment, um, after this history lesson, that 
Ben's mother goes by the name of Emily Appleton Gates, and she is a professor. Now, how convenient her specialty is basically pre-colonial Native American languages. Amazing. Incredible. So, you know, they had to had to go there and uh patrick not too happy about this you get the feeling this was not an amicable divorce um it it's rough you know to see a grown man running at the thought of talking to his own wife but (laughs) ex-wife ex-wife yeah um apparently it had been 32 years since she and patrick had spoken yeah so this is a big uh this is a, a big deal and You know, Aubrey, a lot of important stuff happens here. We're going to kind of, like, go through it relatively quickly. But something that I'd like to point out is, you know, she does her job Mm -hmm. of helping them to understand what the various glyphs on this wooden plank mean. Yeah. But she tells us that one of them means bird. Yeah. So my issue with this is I feel like if it means bird, it probably looks like a bird (laughs) and they probably could have figured that out without her help yeah so like seabla bird yeah and you know then you'd be there (laughs) yes you'd be at mount rushmore (laughs) i don't know what seabla bird means to you but to me it screams mount rushmore yeah um yeah i'm there i'm there you, you i'm sold um okay well to, to break down a little bit further we learned that the writing on the plank is olmec and um effectively she translates what she sees on this plank which i should clarify because we haven't yet it's sort of like half of a plank it's mm-hmm. cut in half and Important. on her on this half of the plank it says find the noble bird let him take you by the hand and give you passage to the sacred temple. At this point, um, Emily has a great moment where she laughs because she's like, you think this pyramid symbol means Sibola, don't you? And um, she claims that it actually means the center of the world. Anyway, it becomes very clear that um, if they didn't already know it, Emily points out that these are partial glyphs and you only have half of a treasure map at which point ben reveals that he knows exactly where the map is um and he just didn't tell his dad before because he has a tendency to overreact that was my contribution to the acting of today um he reveals that of course the second half of the map is in the president's resolute desk in the oval office obviously because these twins stand resolute did we forget Emily probably did. And by Emily, I mean me. I was going to say, which Emily? (laughs) Um, Okay, so to get to the White House, we need to to do this new heist, which is to get into the White House and then get into the Oval Office because the president's resolute desk is in the Oval Office. They go to the annual White House Easter egg roll because convenient. Well, while while, um, Ben and Abigail are at this Easter egg roll, they strategically meet up with Phil Dunphy. Mm. right the white house curator and so um basically they trick phil dunphy into taking them into the oval office because that is definitely a thing you could get phil dunphy to do Mm -hmm. um by just giving him a few flirty looks if your name is abigail chase or Uh, as he calls her abby oh yeah ew right ew Ew, david David. We both just finished watching Shit's Creek. <laughs> Ew, David. 
Um, <laughs> that was priceless. Okay, so, but ew, really, why are we calling her Abby? In any case, um, they are taken by Phil Dunphy into the Oval Office, at which point Abigail has to distract Phil Dunphy. So she pretends to lose an earring and they have to go searching for it. While Ben is like, oh, let me go search by the Resolute desk where none of us were standing because it might be over here. And um, he does the same um, Chinese puzzle box moves with the drawers of the desk and pops out the secret compartment. But, oh my gosh, the plank is gone. (gasps) <gasps> because we're only like an hour into our movie and we need to get at least another 30, 40 minutes in there. So this time around, Ben came prepared with a digital camera. So he takes a picture of the location where the plank should be because there is a stamp in that mm-hmm. compartment. And when they leave the White House and they show the picture of the stamp to Patrick and Riley, Riley is in literal shock. Riley gets really excited. Riley gets excited a lot, but, like, this might be the most excited that I've ever seen Riley. Yeah, and basically he tells them that this this seal or this symbol, um, which is instead of the eagle um, clutching olive branches, he's clutching a scroll. He wrote about this in his Templar treasure book. And it turns out that this supposedly corresponds to the president's secret book, which is some theoretical urban legend book that is written for presidents, by presidents, and for presidents' eyes only. And he has a really great line here, Emily, and since you like quotes, maybe you'll appreciate this. Um, Everyone's like, this is crazy. Like, this can't be real. And he goes, last time I checked, we pretty much make our living on crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is really funny because in real life, Nicolas Cage actually does. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a little bit meta. But according to Riley, and this is something we're going to investigate in a future episode, this seal and the the existence of the president's secret book was released under a Freedom of Information Act request in 1966. And so um, basically, Ben's like, "All right, I guess I believe you." He goes to his best friend, Agent Sadesky, to ask him what he knows about this book. And Sadesky tells him, outside of the confines of the FBI building, that the book does exist. And um, only the president can tell him where it is. So what is the natural next step, Emily? What must Ben do? He must kidnap the president of the United States. And in order to convince everyone, you know, because Ben has to do a little bit of work here, right? He needs to convince everyone, like, to get on board with this plan. And he does what Nick Cage does best and really just has like a Nick Cage level or as we learned probably a Charles Seegers level quote mm-hmm. where he just says before the Civil War the states were all separate people used to say the United States are it wasn't until the war ended that people started saying the United States is under Lincoln we became one nation yes, and with that speech he basically convinced everyone that he could kidnap the president even though it really had nothing to do with the president. No, no, not at all. I just really yeah. like the quote. <laughs> no, for sure. And that's a quote that stuck with me. The whole United States is, mm-hmm. uh, is something I've always remembered from this movie ever since it came out in 2007. Um, so to do this, they basically have to make it so that the president's upcoming birthday party, again, convenient timing, 
is going to be held at Mount Vernon as opposed to any other approved location. Um, we flash forward now to the day of the birthday party at Mount Vernon. Uh, Randy Travis is casually at the birthday party, like as the, the performer. That's who that was? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I should know this guy. He's a good singer. Yeah, he's like very, very legit, very famous. Um, nice touch, National Treasure. Um and Ben is dropped off in, I guess, the Potomac River um, outside of Mount Vernon in his scuba gear, calling back to his technical training being very useful again. Um, and he basically just swims to shore, takes off his scuba gear. He's wearing his classic tux for events that he is not invited to. It is once again not wrinkled, just like the first movie, and I want to know how that's done. And so he basically just walks up to the president. And is like, hello, Mr. President. Happy birthday. It is my honor to be here. I am Ben Gates of the Templar Treasure, as if the Templar Treasure is a job. And and in order to get the president to talk to him more, he basically just whips out this map. Super because, casual. Yeah. And the president just goes, oh, my goodness. This is a map of Mount Vernon drawn by George Washington himself. <laughs> All presidents are just imbued with that knowledge upon inauguration. <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out he was apparently, this president was an architectural history major at Yale, which I'm pretty sure isn't a real major there. I looked it up. Um, so basically on this map, there's a secret tunnel um, that has no outlet. And, and the president is like, let's go find it. And it's like, oh my God, how convenient. That's not what I was thinking at all. <laughs> and so they go underground finding the tunnel Um Basically, the president convinces his Secret Service people not to follow them deep into the tunnel. And so Ben locks them in the tunnel. And the uh, the president is like, what you doing, dude? And that's when Ben is like, I know you can only answer this question that I have if we're alone. And ask you about whether or not this president's secret book exists. Basically, the president immediately is like, yeah, there's no such book. And then Ben's like, okay, let me take you out of the tunnel then and release you. And... Um, they have these poignant conversations and Ben explains that he just really um, needs to find this treasure to clear his ancestor's name. And the president's like, you're nuts if you're literally kidnapping me to prove that your ancestor didn't do a thing people are saying he did. And um, there is, if you don't mind, I have a quote that I think is important no. here. To the, to, in answer of, to the question, why would I tell you if that book, book actually existed? Why would I show it to you? Ben says... Well, because it will probably lead us to the discovery of the greatest Native American treasure of all time, a huge piece of culture lost, and you could give that history back to its descendants. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that is... Yeah. And that's the moment, I think, when the president decides, all right, the following conversation never happened. And he, and he tells Ben he needs to go to the Library of Congress, and he gives him two codes. Nope. But here's the thing. Now we get to the last moment before we depart the president. Um, that is the other big thing that really drives me nuts about this particular film, Emily. Um, and that is the president says, you know, 200 people know that you held me against my will and I can't tell them why, because this book is a secret. So unless you discover the treasure, you're basically going to prison. And my answer to that is literally no. 200 people do not know that Ben held him against his will and you can't tell him why. Also, why not? Why can't you just say we were exploring this tunnel and the door closed behind us? Yeah, it doesn't have to be against your will, dude. Right? 
And that's what he ends up saying at the end when they do find the treasure. So, like, yeah. Anyway, we have one final moment with the president, and I'm going to mention it because it's very important for National Treasure 3. Um, the president does advise Ben when he finds the book to have a look at page 47 and to report back. We'll get more on that later. So, of course, now um, Ben and his crew are going to the Library of Congress. They go through the front door. Again, Abigail is an employee here, so that becomes helpful. Even so, she doesn't have access to the special collections room XY somehow. So I'm not really sure how useful it is that she works here. But they use the, the short number code to get into the special collections room. And then within the room to find the book, the location of the book that longer string of numbers is a combination to basically a six dial combination lock. And yeah, the book is in a secret compartment. They find it. They, um, it's, it's this beautiful moment for Riley once again, where it's like, yep, this thing that you said was real is real. Well done. I'd like to point out that at one point in this scene, the fingers of Abigail and Ben touch one another and the chemistry, my heart continue. Yes. Um, that I had a feeling you'd point that out. So thank you for, for that. We do have to track the love story evolution. I am nothing if not consistent with my love story tracking. That's true. I will, I will give you that. Um, I am nothing if not consistent in saying that Sadusky is dumb. And the reason that becomes relevant here is because the FBI is basically now at the Library of Congress to try to capture Ben. Because why? Because Sadusky knew the book was there the whole time and didn't tell Ben. So Sadusky is dumb again. And I do want to point out that... Um, our super fan, Matt, who joined us for our bonus off-season episode, who was trying to convince me and did a really close job of convincing me that Sadusky was trying to let them win the whole time in the first movie. Matt, I'm sorry, but you're wrong because Sadusky was trying to get them arrested at the Library of Congress. And if he wanted to help them, he could have told Ben from the get-go that the book was at the Library of Congress. Okay, so that's my retort. Tweet at us, Matt. Let us know what you think about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, anyway, um, this is what we learn from the book. This is the important part. And I'm gonna, I am going to go into a little bit of detail here because it's really complex. And I had to rewatch this scene actually like five or six times when I was taking notes here to make sure I fully understood what was going on. So I want to make sure you all do too. We read in the book, in April 1865, Queen Victoria sends Pike, so this is Confederate General Albert Pike, two coded missives. The first missive is received and contains information about the New World treasure, the City of Gold. The Queen wanted to help the Confederacy because a divided America was weaker and she also needed to have access to cotton, which was grown in the South. Okay. The second missive was thought to contain a Playfair cipher suggesting contact with Laboulet, who was going to hide the clues to the treasure before he died. So that is the cipher from the second missive that is written in the Booth Diary page. So if the second missive contained the cipher, the first missive is going to be the letter that Mitch Wilkinson has later on in the movie. Mm. Okay, that is the final clue and why he keeps referring to it as the final clue. It was referred to in the president's secret book, and that's why when they get to Mount Rushmore, again, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but that's why Ben knows Mitch has that letter, and that takes Mitch by surprise. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, Aubrey, I got very little of that from watching the film, as I'm sure will come as no surprise to any of our listeners. Hey, I, I live to serve. Um, but we go a little bit further here. Also in the book, we learn that in 1880, the Resolute Desk was sent to President Hayes. And there's a, uh, a final entry that we look at by President Coolidge. In 1924, he supposedly found the plank that was missing from the desk. He photographed it. The photograph is in the president's book. And then he destroyed the plank for some reason. Literal God knows why. And after that, it says, President Coolidge wrote, Borglum was commissioned to destroy the landmarks in the sacred Black Hills Mountains. This means, so Borglum was the person who basically um, designed or, and or constructed Mount Rushmore. So they say carved, they carved Mount Rushmore to erase the map's landmarks to protect Cibola. Okay. Which, guys, once again, will come as no surprise. I did not notice that until this viewing. That that Mount Rushmore was carved to protect the literal city of gold? Then how do you think they ended up at Mount Rushmore? I just thought it was like a clue. But what was the clue? That the, the they needed to go to Mount Rushmore, but I didn't realize that like the reason that it had been carved was to protect that. I just thought it happened to be like that, like Mount Rushmore just happened to be carved in that area. So did you think that ancient Native American civilizations decided to carve into their sacred Black Hills a massive structure of American presidents? Uh, no. (laughs) So good point. I clearly didn't think about this that well. (laughs) So um, so I will make a note because this, again, feeds into the rumored National Treasure 3. Ben does take a photograph of page 47 before he departs the book. Okay, so um, we now have to escape the FBI again because they're basically there. They escape um, out the back entrance. We flash to... Mitch Wilkinson, because we haven't seen him in a while, right? Like, he hasn't done nothing in a while, so we need to check in on him doing nothing. And Mitch Wilkinson goes to Ben's mom's office at University of Maryland, because remember, he cloned Patrick's phone and knows now that the mom can translate the plank. So he gets there before Patrick does. Patrick is actually going there to try to see if she can translate the second half of the plank. And she actually realizes he's a bad dude and she lies and tells him she can't translate it. At which point Patrick arrives, Mitch hides and basically says, tell your ex-husband anything but the truth or else I will shoot him. But unfortunately, as soon as Patrick gets there, he lets slip because he doesn't know Mitch is there. He says, we know it leads to Mount Rushmore. So at that point, um, Emily says, Islands of stone in a sea of grass is the first part of this translation, and that's what the Lakota used to call the Black Hills. So I'm wondering, Emily, I'm not sure if you've thought about this before. Did she make that up because um, Mitch told her to say something that was a lie or because Patrick had already said something that was sort of like true, like it's telling us to go to Mount Rushmore? She translated that part of it. The reason I think it might actually be true is because the third and final part of this movie that drives me nuts, and we'll get to that at the very end, um, and again, skipping forward a little bit, when they get to the Black Hills and find the patch of rocks Mm -hmm. where they need to be, 
I don't know how in the entire world they could have known those were the patches of rocks. Like, there's so many rocks, right? <laughs> so, yes, that bothers me as well. I wonder if the islands of stone in a sea of grass is pointing them to those rocks. Oh. Islands of stone, because they're literally the stones in the middle of the water. Oh, wow, Aubrey, that's a nice catch. Thank you. I could be making that up, but that's how I'm interpreting it. I mean, it sounds real. Right, right. Okay, we're going to go with that. Um, in any case, she does make up the second part of the translation, which is, find where the moon touches the earth and release the hummingbird. Release the hummingbird. Yes. Well, so here's one of those things that you wouldn't, this wouldn't make sense to the viewer unless you watched the deleted scenes, like on YouTube, or I guess like the DVD, if people use those anymore. Um, in the deleted scenes, you you see a scene and you learn that that was like code between Ben and his mom that was to indicate that the mom was in trouble, that Mitch, like, had kidnapped her. Oh! And release the hummingbird, like, release her. Oh, Um, she's the hummingbird. Yes. So, basically, check out the deleted scene if you haven't seen it before. If I remember, I'll try to post it on our social media um, when we release this episode, because I think that's something that, uh, that was one of the things that always bugged me. Maybe this is the equivalent of the declaration cost, in the first movie. A little more low-key. It's low-key. It, you can figure it out and be satisfied. Um, yeah, so so anyway, Patrick leaves because he thinks he has the real translation. And Wilkinson comes out from the shadows and says, uh, sucks that I'm the only one who has the last clue. And he pulls out that first missive, the letter from Queen Victoria to, um, to General Pike. Um, And he basically says what Ben already figured out, that the queen was partial to the Confederates' cause, and that the letter contains a vital piece of information that is worthless without the translation of the plank. So maybe because Mitch had this letter, it's a little bit less icky that he'll get partial credit for finding the treasure? Yeah, he did have, he he had, like, the important piece. Yeah, I'm still not convinced they wouldn't have figured it out anyway, but we'll get there. Um, So now we're at Mount Rushmore. Ben, Abigail, and Riley are there. They know to be looking for Mitch and Emily because of the release the hummingbird. And um, and Riley has a full hiking backpack on. He is he's he's prepared. He like knows this is gonna like go downhill. Yeah. He, He like he came prepared this time, as opposed to last time in the crypt where he was. I mean. He probably has all the treasure hunting gear plus like 18 laptops because who knows when you might need to do a techie thing because you are Riley. Yeah. You know? Um, so we're at Mount Rushmore. The bad guys meet with the good guys and um, Ben reveals that he already knows about the letter uh, that, that Mitch burned, which comes as a mighty surprise to Mitch, which is really satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, at this point, we realize that all Wilkinson wants is to get credit for finding the treasure. Which, again, is so stupid. Now we have to go and find the, the, the appropriate place within the, these rocks. Maybe this islands of stone in the sea of grass. So, basically, um, we know that we are looking for a noble bird. Recall, this was part of the translation of the Buckingham Palace piece of the plank. And so, um, we're looking for a noble bird... This is when Wilkinson gives his first little bit of 
what this letter said, the information that only he knows. And he says, the entrance shall only be revealed under a cloudless rain. So what happens, Emily? We start watering some rocks. What do you mean by watering rocks, Emily? (laughs) We take some water bottles out and we start pouring them on rocks. And Emily, my namesake, but not really. I was named after a street sign. Asks the important questions, which include, are we going to water the whole thing? (laughs) Fair question, Emily, because honestly, that's what I wonder every single time. (laughs) Abigail, on the other hand, gets real lucky and pours some water right over where this noble bird is located. At which point they all then crowd around, get really excited, and we get a wonderful line from Riley who tries to explain to them what their next steps need to be and he says we need to join hands and in a noble manner pass over the bird and somehow that bird will rise (laughs) at which point Riley pretends to be a bird by flapping his arms and caws I love him Sorry, I need to get this together because it is so funny. And it's a moment that happens so quickly in the movie that it's easy to, like, miss it if you, like, stepped out for a second. But I really hope you didn't because it is excellent. And I do feel the need to clarify here because Emily didn't mention it. The noble bird is a carving of an eagle. (laughs) I just want that It's the United States. Of course it's an eagle. It's not a hummingbird, Aubrey. It's an eagle. That's true. But the way you said it, it could have been a literal eagle. It is. It is a carving of an eagle, and um, and this is when Mitch chimes in again because he has another clue to reveal. Surrender your hand to the heart of the warrior, and this is one of those things that they would have figured this out if Mitch wasn't there. the The eagle is carved around this crevice that is like begging you to put your hand in it. All right, and so. Um, Ben sacrifices his hand, puts his hand in, and basically accesses uh, a lever. He pulls the lever in the rocks, and uh, a little bit away, maybe 100 yards away, um, at the water's edge, we see a door open out of the side of the rocks, because convenient. And, um, yeah, again... The rocks. Can I just say, the rocks start falling away mm-hmm. from Mount Rushmore, and, like, nobody seems concerned about this. Granted, they seem to be the only people in this area of Mount Rushmore, but nobody at all is like, oh my gosh, these rocks are falling off of this historic landmark. Well, it's because I don't think this was actually at Mount Rushmore anymore. Like, this is sort of off to the side. That lake isn't actually next to Mount Rushmore. It's unclear if that is a an artistic decision that the lake is there or if they actually, like, went to Mount Rushmore and then, like, walked further to find the islands of stone or whatever. Um, but you're right. They are falling all over the place and um, they they go enter the water and, and start the real final sequence here. Before we enter this door that has opened, this is um, the other part of this film that I just want to publicly LOL at. And that is the fact that um, President Coolidge built Mount Rushmore to destroy the landmarks to Cibola. Um, and he picked a patch of rocks that was just completely wrong. Completely wrong patch of rocks to destroy. Because um, clearly, like, and, and here's the thing, too. Ben never was daunted. He was never like, oh, my God, they built Mount Rushmore to destroy the landmarks. The landmark is destroyed. He was like, yeah, clearly they, like, destroyed the wrong rocks 
And at this point, let me just remind you that we are Ben, Riley, Abigail, Mitch, Emily, and Patrick. And um, when we when we enter this door, there are immediately Native American relics, sort of carving statues, if you will, just all around them. Yeah, and let me just say, Emily here, clearly not too familiar with treasure hunts because she forgot the number one rule of treasure hunts, which is that you don't get too excited about what you see first in the place with the treasure. We learned this from National Treasure 1. If she had watched that movie, she mm. would have known, but apparently she did not, and she gets very pumped about what she sees here. Yes, but fortunately, her her excitement is short-lived because this movie is too safe and too secure right now. We have to split up our group. Um, so Riley gets distracted by a little golden idol um, on a wall. And it's so a little golden man. It's a little golden man. And so um, Riley, Mitch, Abigail, and Ben walk over to look at it, and they fall through a trapdoor because Indiana Jones, I guess. And you know what's um, at the bottom of this trapdoor? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. The thing of nightmares. This massive, the only way I can describe it is like a tilt platform. This stresses me out so much. Like, I distinctly remember seeing this scene in the theaters. Mm. And yeah. it was so stressful. And it gets me every single time. And Aubrey, you know what's below this platform that they get a quick little glimpse of? A black abyss of nothing. A black abyss of nothing, but there are also some dead bodies. Oh, yeah. That yes. they show the audience. Yeah. I don't think they can see the dead bodies, but they show us because what is national treasure without some dead bodies? Am I That's right? That's true. Especially the closer you get to the treasure, if you're not seeing dead bodies, then you know you're not on the right track. Yes, there's definitely some math involved. The closer you get to the treasure, the N number of bodies increases potentially yes. exponentially. We should probably make a, a plot of this to, to demonstrate and yes. share it online. Yes, I, I agree. This is the scientist in us. Um, so basically, the only way I can describe this is it's this giant platform that is balanced on one axis in the middle of the platform. And so basically, if there are four people on the platform, they have to balance their weight so that they don't all go falling off of the side. And um, this is another one of those sequences that's like very anxiety inducing. In the end, they all escape because there is a ladder that's hanging off to the side and they have to like sort of launch people onto the ladder to get up onto a ledge to keep moving forward. And, and now, Aubrey, um, I know I was your roommate in college, so I know that, you know, you used to do push-ups in the room and stuff like that. Uh, you're flexing a little bit right now. I can see, I know you got some upper body strength here. Let me just say, I would die. <laughs> if I was in this situation, I have no upper body strength. So somebody, as soon as somebody launched me onto that ladder, I would just be like, well, this is where I go, guys. This is the end. <laughs> Thank you for sending me off and sacrificing potentially one of your lives, but I'm going to die now. Well, here's the thing. You could have just been Riley in this scenario because he did volunteer. He's like, I can do the math. I know that one person is going to have to stay behind on this tilt platform. Fortunately, for, fortunately, everything starts falling apart literally around them right as they're all trying to escape. So they kind of all have to run and jump onto the ladder in some way, shape or form. Um, and Abigail, before Ben gets to jump onto this ladder, another moment that I have to mention for our <laughs> love connection chemistry uh, tracking through this film, Abigail kind of looks back at Ben longingly. And in that look, you can see it says, I love you. 
so basically we escape the tilt platform and Ben's little posse part of this group gets to this big room. There's more relics and statues and stuff. The room is filling with water because that is the MO of this movie um, is water. Apparently mm-hmm. recurring theme question mark. Yeah. Anyway. I'm just noticing it now, but water <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so we water so- the rocks. maybe some of the water from that we used to water the rocks is now coming back down. <laughs> Exactly. It's coming back to haunt us. It's really a full circle. Um, They basically can close the water spilling doors by turning this wheel and um, they have to go down instead of forward. And this is where it comes back to the whole center of the earth thing. The, the, the forward for them is actually going down through a tunnel. Um, this part I always forget about, and it reminds me a little bit of the antechamber room in the first movie, how there's like this room and you have to do one more step. And I always forget about it because it's just like a little bit too long. Anyway, we go through this tunnel that's downward and we've just suddenly stumbled upon the city of gold. Congratulations. Yeah. So there was apparently two ways to get to this, the actual city of gold room the whole time. I will just point out the path using the tilt platform and then the way that Patrick and Emily went. So again, recall that they had been split up um, from the rest of the group. And so they have to take like a separate path that involves them swinging on a rope over like a gorge. Yeah, It's Tarzan time. Yeah, because last time I feel like we had some very Tarzan, Indiana Jones moments that featured Ben. This time it has to feature his dad and his mom, who, I'm surprised you didn't mention this, Emily, basically get back together on screen. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Sure you did. Um, So basically, we all happen upon the treasure room, Cibola, all at the same time. Everyone's obviously super stoked. This is some um, incredible CGI Everything is glittering gold. Um, Riley is trying to literally put bricks of gold into his backpack. It's kind of hilarious and very Riley. And this is where we get the moment that um, makes me want to punch my TV screen. And that is that Mitch says, oh, Nick Cage. Oh, Ben Gates. I'm sorry I smeared your great, great granddaddy's good name. It was the only way to get you in on the hunt. But the Wilkinson family needed to make history and be remembered or something nonsense. What? What? That was the whole purpose? That was the whole thing you just wanted to get credit for finding the treasure? You do realize that Ben being a part of this means that he's going to get credit as well as the other five people in the room with you right now. And you have no history of treasure hunting, but this guy was literally just in the news three years ago for finding the Templar treasure. You think you're going to get all the attention? You're like, what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. At this point, things take a bit of a turn. They do, um, because now they have to escape Cibola, <laughs> because <laughs> Cibola, too, begins to fill with water, because water. Because water. Water is the, the uniting theme. Yeah, of, it's water was the villain the whole time. Mm-hmm. We yeah. didn't know it. But honestly, <laughs> this water scene is just very well done. And I know it's going to come as a bit of a disappointment to everyone, but I actually don't have any snarky commentary about it. I just, I like sat there and I watch it every time. I sit and watch it every time. Wait, the part where they have to escape? Yeah, I, I just, I love it and I just get so into it and I have nothing bad to say about it. It's just. Well, it's a good thing that I do then. Oh, good. Because 
basically they figure out that there is a current to the water and they have to follow the current to see where the water is flowing out of. And they enter another room where there's once again, this like wheel contraption where there's a door. And if the door is open, the drainage tunnel that is past the door fills up. But if the door is closed, the room fills up. And either way, you drown. You have to get to the other side of the door and close the door in order to not drown. So this is another situation, sort of like where we were with the tilt platform, where someone has to stay behind. And basically, Mitch threatens to slit Abigail's throat if, um, <laughs> with a knife that he took out of a dead body, if <laughs> oh, yeah. um, Ben doesn't agree to stay behind and die while Mitch survives. And, and ben, the rest. Who loves Abigail? What does he do? Well, they have a moment of peering into each other's eyes, and he asks her to make his parents leave with her. You make sure they leave. You make sure that they leave. Yeah. Um, I, what is your thought as the romantic here that they don't like kiss or profess their love for each other or anything in this moment when they both think that Ben is going to die? I think he's a little too concerned about his parents. Mm -hmm. And I think that he's also a little concerned about her. Like, I don't think he fully trusts Mitch to like not. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Mitch is like. I know he has a long resume of like some bad, bad stuff, but mm -hmm. I don't know what his knife throwing skills are. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he could have, like, across the room and taken her out or something, so. Counterpoint, what if they didn't because Ben somehow had a plan to get out the whole time? This is something I've been working on and trying to figure out. I don't have any evidence for it, but um, it's something I've been thinking about and I would invite everyone's thoughts. Uh, As a scientist, they... Aubrey, I will say that lack of evidence is a little alarming. Well, that's because there's room to find that evidence. I just, I find it really strange the way that scene plays out. In the end, um, they, they, um, the whole thing is Ben's going to open the door. Mitch is going to leave first and then everyone else can leave. Um, but when they open, when Ben opens the door, the current is too strong and it starts washing everyone out, um, out the door. And, um, right as Ben is trying to like hold the door open for, and Mitch is about to make his escape, very conveniently, a giant gold idol falls on the wheel that he's holding, and it basically launches Ben forward towards the door, and Mitch kind of stays put. And um, Mitch then opens the door, and there's this interesting, like, 30-second dialogue between Ben, who's now sort of stuck in the door, and Mitch, yeah. who's holding the door open. And as Mitch is holding the door open, he's like, oh my god, but I'm gonna drown, but I'm gonna drown, and Ben's like, I can get you out, he's like, but I'm gonna drown, and then all of a sudden he's like, well, we could all drown, or it could just be me, like, in a moment, he just decides yeah, to be like the martyr. <laughs> exactly, so that's what I'm like, yeah, that's weird, and then he has this moment, um, I found the city of gold, I found it, and no one will ever know, tell them I found it, and I'm like, stop being a child, you literal criminal. Okay. But it's all good because Ben gets under the door and everybody's fine. Yeah, and they all have this momentary silence on the other side of the door, almost like there's this unspoken acknowledgement that they've just killed a man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to say, we don't really address again. Like, we, we do in the sense that, like, Ben, like, at later, spoiler alert, for, like, two minutes into the future of the movie, <laughs> Ben is, like... 
Oh, oh, but also include Mitch. Like, and clearly Mitch is not with them. So, like, something Mitch is dead. Yeah. But, um, yes, I guess, I guess it's slightly after that moment where they all look at each other and have this mutual realization that they just killed a man. Um, yeah. All the couples are together. Emily puts her head on Patrick's shoulder. Ben and Abigail are next to each other, looking all lovingly at each other. And Riley is there, the fifth wheel, as always. And it, my heart is happy because everybody's together again, and it's as it should be. Okay, so, like, Emily and Patrick have been on the one side of this door for a little while now, right? Like, Abigail was true to her word. She made sure they got under they were mm-hmm. like they were chilling there, so I have to imagine like they're a little stressed about their kid and that kind of stuff, but they're chilling, mm-hmm. right? Abigail and Riley got under the door relatively quickly, so they've also been on that side for a little while now. And I get that like they were involved in the whole thing where like Ben's leg was like kind of stuck under the door, and mm-hmm. like so they were like trying to like pull him out, and they were a little distracted. But like with all the time that the four people spent on the other side of the the impendingly closing door did none of them notice that there was a literal light at the end of the tunnel until the moment that the door fully closed like i do not buy that nobody realized that that was there yeah until they were like the moment they were like 50 feet away like no, it was, it was literally like you you would have like you would have probably felt the sunlight <laughs> Which they probably need at that point. No, that's fair. My comment actually comes just a moment later when they do leave the tunnel. And true to form, Sadusky and his crew is there. Just, you know, a little too far behind all the time. And Ben calls him on a cell phone um, to be like, we found Cibola. And I'm like, yo, how does Ben have a cell phone when 30 seconds ago y'all were just drowning? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, this is, this is easily solved by just, like, asking a park ranger to borrow their cell phone. But could you imagine that moment? No, no, no. Could you imagine that moment when he's walking up to a park ranger and he's literally drenched? Like, they have been drowning. He's like, may I borrow your cell phone, please? Oh, by the way, I'm not the person that all of the radios and, and you know, alerts on your phone say is being wanted by the FBI. But also, please, may I borrow your there. cell phone? Yeah, a person didn't die in there. I'm not a murderer. Um, so, so, um, so true to form, this is a very pinnacle moment of any National Treasure movie. When Ben tells Sadusky, I just found a National Treasure, and Sadusky says, it doesn't matter, you still committed a felony. The only thing that's missing is, someone's got to go to prison, Ben. No one went to prison this time, because Mitch is dead. Mm, convenient. Right? Anyway... Um, the FBI takes um, Abigail, Riley, and Ben to, like, an Air Force base or something. At which point, I would like to ask, why is Abigail the only one who gets a blanket? Because patriarchy? Yes, Aubrey, exactly. Because <laughs> hashtag patriarchy, well <laughs> done. And then possibly my favorite part of this entire scene is that when they see none other than the president, they do a big reveal and they see that the president is there. Riley immediately starts hitting Abigail on the shoulder very rapidly to which Abigail just looks at him and goes, stop, stop it, stop it. (laughs) Yeah. So this is actually pretty important. Um, Both to sum up the movie and also to put the last um, knife into my sanity when it comes to this film, um, which is the fact that um, the Secret Service people are like, hey, Mr. President, with all due respect, this is the man that tried to kidnap you. 
and the president says, oh, as I recall, we were exploring a hidden tunnel and the door closed accidentally and this man saved my life. Why couldn't he have said that before? Oh my gosh. Suspense, Aubrey, that's why. I know, I know, but just still, uh, at least, at least it happened. And so this, we get our, our big kumbaya moment at the end. Um, we learn that our three protagonists, plus Emily, Patrick, and Mitch, will get credit for the Siebel of Find. Um, and then finally, the president asks Ben um, about what he saw on page 47 of the book. And Ben says, I believe I can help with that, sir. To which the president responds, so it's good? And Ben says, life-altering, sir. And I say, give us the third movie now. Give us National Treasure 3, please. <laughs> We've been waiting for only like 13 years. Yes, <laughs> Emily can math. Um, yeah, so so you know we see little happy bits of the excavation, um, and we see um, a girl showing interest in Riley, and we see Riley getting his Ferrari back tax free, and we see that Ben is allowed to move back in with Abigail. And the only thing I have left to say, Emily, is a callback to National Treasure One. As you may recall, although it is you, so you might not, at the end of the movie, when Riley is complaining about the amount of money they get as part of the treasure for the reward, Ben says, the next time we discover a treasure that redefines American or basically civilization's history, you get to determine the finder's fee. So my question is, did Riley get to determine the finder's fee? Mm. Maybe we will find out. In National Treasure 3, give us the third movie. Give it to us. Give us all the nice things, including all National nice Treasure things. 3. Oh my gosh. So we hope that that the past hour and a half, I don't know how long you've just spent with us, has been another nice thing in your life. Because we certainly had a little too much fun um, with our recap and commentary. If you hadn't noticed, we're only getting more comfortable with the whole commentary side of this <laughs> um, and are having a little too much fun doing it. Um, so so all I got to say is thank you so much for tuning in to the season two premiere of the National Treasure Hunt podcast. We hope that with this primer, to lead into the rest of our podcast season, you will come back and join us for our new episodes that are coming your way every other Wednesday, now getting into the nitty-gritty niche aspects of National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets, now that we're all on the same page. So, Emily, why don't you tell everyone where they're going to find us on social media in the meantime? So, in case you don't remember, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast. You can find our podcast for your listening ears anywhere that you like to get your podcast. We have iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review, tell us what you guys think. Please respond to us on Twitter with things that we're going to post for the episode. Um, and just yeah, we're looking forward to doing this again for you guys. So yes, stick with us. So please join us in two weeks time for episode 12, where we're going to tell you what's real and what's not when it comes to the historical facts portrayed in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. Until then, I'm Aubrey. I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.